But anyway, let's get into uh, Romans. I've been doing, this is actually part 18 of my series in Romans. I didn't know what I was getting into when I started a series on Romans. So I was working out of the gym last Saturday night, and uh, there's another pastor that works out usually about the same time that I do. He comes in and he says, hey, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, Romans. He said, no way. That's what I'm preaching on too. He says, I've got another friend that's doing Romans. What's going on with Romans? And I said, I don't know. It must be the Lord saying we need this for right now. But I'll tell you, this whole thing on sonship that we have camped on for the last several weeks has been so critical. And daughtership is included in that. Just don't go to the mothership because then we're starting to get into weird. (laughs) Oh, never mind. You know what I'm talking about there. We're sons and daughters of the Lord. This is so important to who we are and where we're going. And there's something about the timing of, of, you know, I do these series and you come to this point in the scripture, you go, God, how could you arrange for this to be right now? Because this is exactly what you're speaking to us and what you're saying to us. Romans 8 verse 15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Daughtership is implied. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Has the Holy Spirit testified with your spirit? Do you have that witness of the Spirit that you are a son and daughter of Christ? Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Father, your word is so good. It's like bread for our soul. And today, as we partake of this meal, so to speak, in the, in the scripture, I pray that you would feed us, change us. Lord, if there are lies that have been sown in our heart, whether it's just things that we believed over the years or things the enemy has sown in our hearts, Lord, things that other people have spoken over us or spoken to us, Sometimes we don't mean to, but sometimes people can say cruel things. But Lord, today, help us to hear your voice and what you are saying to us. I believe it's a message of love. I believe it's a message of healing. And I pray, Father, that you would confirm your word in our hearts in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this will be the last in the sub-series on sonship that's part of the bigger series in Romans. So Romans 8, I've been, I've been reading the New Living Translation. The NIV and the King James say it a little bit differently, and I usually look at all the different versions of Scripture because you can see interesting things there. But one says the, the uh, spirit of adoption. The other says the spirit of sonship. Today we're going to focus on the idea of sonship and daughtership. They're both correct, uh, but we're more familiar probably with the word adoption We're less familiar with what it means to be a son and daughter, sonship and daughtership. What does that mean? We've also looked in the last couple weeks at Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, which I renamed the parable of the two lost sons, because really the focus is more on the elder son uh, in the story. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and that elder son represents them, but both of these sons are lost. One is right there, right next to Jesus, or right next to the Father, and he's lost. He doesn't know the Father's love. The other one is geographically distant. He's rejected the Father and gone far away, but both of their sons are equally lost. They really don't understand the Father's love. So I just want to read that again, and then let's jump in here in um, Luke 15, verse 25. Let's look at the older son here. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. 
And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Imagine that. The father comes out and begs him to come in. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you've told me to. In all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We have to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Understand that the Pharisees listening to the story that Jesus was telling, if they looked at it from the perspective of the law, the younger son really was worthy of death. He had rejected the father. He had told his father, I really don't want relationship with you. I want what you have to give me. I want my inheritance. I'm going to take it and do whatever I want, but I really don't care about relationship. Both these guys didn't have relationship with their father. Okay? But the, the Pharisees are thinking, okay, Jesus is coming to the end of the story. Now he's going to lay it out, and he's going to talk about the younger son being punished. And Jesus turns the story around from the way that the Pharisees, and not all Judaism was that way, by the way. Okay? You need to understand there were three branches of Judaism at that time. The Pharisees we know about, the Sadducees were another group that didn't believe in the resurrection. There was a third group. They're the ones that set aside the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you have heard about the Qumran community? That community had almost been wiped out. The Pharisees cut a deal with the Romans and convinced Herod. Herod killed before, a couple years before Jesus was born. From what I understand, he killed 30,000 of the key leaders of the Qumran community. I want, you, I want you to hear this because the orphan spirit can be a very dangerous spirit. The Pharisees didn't want any competition. Just like the elder brother here looked at his younger brother, he, there was no way he was going to go in and celebrate. If you have, and somebody said to me this morning, you know, I, I always rejoice when I see someone else getting blessed. It's as, as though I were getting blessed. And I thought, Don, you, you had no idea that was in my notes today. But that's, that's one of the signs of having a true understanding of our sonship. We can rejoice with other brothers and sisters in the family as they get blessed. If you have an orphan spirit and you see others getting blessed, something rises up in you. There's a wound that says, no way. God, what have you ever done for me lately? You know, we actually had a guy years ago. This is so many years ago that nobody will know who he is that stood up on a Sunday morning. So can I share a testimony? He got up and he said, I was thinking the other day, hey, Jesus, what have you done for me lately? He hasn't done anything for me lately. I thought, this is not going to be a good testimony. It actually turned around to be good later. But there are some people that think that. You always take a risk when you give other people the mic. <laughs> I loved it at the uh, prayer gathering in Cleveland before the convention. They told us, they said, you'll notice that we don't hand mics to anybody. We have people holding the mic. And if anybody gets inappropriate, we just pull the mic away and we all start praising the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's wonderful. And we just clap the guy off the stage. <laughs> so if that happens to you here, you'll know what's going on, okay? <laughs> but can you imagine the Pharisees wanted no competition with the other branches of Judaism? They incited the Romans to kill their brothers. Imagine that. 
Well, I want to talk just a little bit about the symptoms of an orphan spirit. I know we've already talked about that, but I feel like the Lord wants us to do that one time. And then we're going to talk about how to get rid of the orphan spirit once and for all. And I want to end today with leading us in a time of prayer where we can ask God to come and heal our hearts. So what are the, some of the symptoms of an orphan spirit and those who call themselves children of God? And these are people that believe in the Lord, people that have been born again, and yet they're carrying within them wounds. We call it an orphan spirit or an orphan heart, however you want to put it. The first thing is, it's an improper view of how we work with Father God. The older son, we would say, probably had a good work ethic. He was out there every day, right? He was in the fields. He was right next to his dad. But do you know what? He was working for his dad as a slave rather than working with his father as a son. You ever see a, a truck go by and it says so-and-so and son's company? I mean, when you're a son, you have special standing in the company. I worked with my dad for years. He had different things going, different companies, truck parts stores, and then restaurants and whatever. He said, now listen, you're my son. And he says, I'm going to take care of you. He said, but you have to do every job starting at the beginning. So you're going to start by uh, referencing, your, you have to um, inventory truck parts. And then, that was when I was about eight or nine years old, I started doing that. Okay. And then later as I got older, I had to sweep and fill holes in the parking lot and you know, use hot tar and fill holes. He said, I don't want you because you're going to be my manager someday. He told me my destiny, so you'll be the manager of the company. And someday you'll be the owner if you're faithful, but you're going to do every job so that nobody can say that you don't know that you've done this, okay? But at working with a father, you have something. I had to fire a lady, and I was 19 years old, okay? I was a shift manager. She said, you're too young to fire me. I said, my dad owns the company, and you stole money. She said, okay, I'll pack my things. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying about working for the father and working with the father? There's a, there's a thing, and how we look at work God doesn't want us to come as slaves with this attitude that we can't ask God for anything. The older brother, he never expressed his desires to the father. He held all those feelings in. He never said, Father, I wish we could party together, that we could have this wonderful feast and, and just rejoice together. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 10, it says, His intent was now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms and according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to this in verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Religious people have this idea that God is out to get them. I don't care what religion it is, but if it's a religious spirit, there's this idea that God is harsh, God is out to get you. It's like the guy that buried his one talent in the ground and said, I know that God is a very harsh taskmaster, so I thought I'd better bury it and uh, just make sure I didn't lose anything, but I'm not going to put it to use for God. I mean, that's a totally wrong idea. The Lord wants us to work along with him. To know God means to work with him. And, and when you are slaving away and you're caught up on a wrong work ethic, there's this thing that I'm working for God as a slave, but I'm not really working along with him. How does that happen practically? Part of it is saying, Lord, what have you called me to do? Where are you calling me to work? What, what are you calling? And, and people that, I know people all their life that work and work, they find their identity and their approval in their work, and no matter what they do, they feel deep inside that they haven't done enough. How do I know that? Because I had that for years. I remember, Janice, can I share the story? When we were just a couple years in ministry, 
remember Janice saying to me, I was working two jobs. She said, you're working 70 hours a week. And she said, your father was a workaholic, and you're now becoming a workaholic, but you're justifying it by saying that you are doing this for the Lord. And boy, did that hit me. That leveled me. And I had to go to prayer, and I had to trust God to work less to provide for us, and he did, didn't he? He did. But I, was, I had these little kids that I wasn't seeing because I was constantly working, and I was neglecting my wife because I was working for God instead of working with the Lord. Do you see the little bit of a difference there? Some of you are saying, but I don't see the way out from where I am. Well, just like Jen said a few moments ago, it starts with praying and saying, God, I'm stuck in a situation and I feel like I can't get out. I need your help here. And saying, Lord, I, I can't do this whole thing. But if you're working to establish your identity, and this is what the elder son was doing, he was trying to justify himself. He was trying to earn something. He was working so hard saying, God, look what I'm doing here. Will you see what I'm doing and will you celebrate what I'm doing? And he wasn't getting it that he already had the Lord's favor. Also, if you are stuck in that problem of looking at work the wrong way, you will evaluate others by what they do rather than who they are. The feeling that we've never done enough and that others never have done enough. The religious spirit focuses on doing things for God that he has never authorized us to do. This is important. The elder son was slaving away with a joyless existence, assuming that the father wanted it that way. He assumed a lot of things about the father. He assumed that his work was earning him some sort of favor, and he wasn't seeing it coming, so he was upset. All along, the father was just waiting for him to ask, and he was ready to pour out the blessings on him. There's a dangerous thing about this illusion that what we do for God will please him and get us into eternity. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. So here's somebody working away for the Father, in the name of the Father, they're doing good things. I mean, if you're driving out demons, if you're prophesying in the name of the Lord, if they're doing miracles, I mean, this, this scripture really stirs my heart up. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. This is somebody that has no relationship that's been working for the Lord instead of working with the Lord. This is powerful. And I pray if you're, if you're stuck, because, I, you know, I've been, I've been both of the brothers in my life. When I was about 13, I decided I was going to walk away from church. And for five years, until I was a student at Kent State and I came back to the Lord, I uh, purposely turned my back on God. He never turned his back on me. As a matter of fact, he would send people up to me I never met. And said, I was just walking by and I felt like I was supposed to tell you that God loves you all the time. I was, I was literally afraid. I, I, I thought I knew God could see me wherever I was. My theology was correct. I just didn't want him to see me anymore. But then I came to Christ and I got into that older brother syndrome. I got stuck in that whole thing of working for God and trying to do all these things and a legalism that had nothing to do with what the Father wanted. Jesus' words are so strong here in Matthew 7. The last part of that scripture says, Away from me, you evildoers. The Lord considers working for him without relationship with him a presumption that he considers evil. Think about that. That's heavy duty. 
Imagine working your whole life thinking you're accomplishing something for God only to arrive at your destination where you think it is in heaven and you find out two things. You never really knew God at all. And your work, the second thing, your work on God's behalf was not acceptable and had earned you nothing. Even worse, you realized that you had judged God all along and you thought he was harsh and here he had been longing just to be with you. If you don't have a place in your life where you can just be with God, you need to create that space. Where you get a cup of coffee and a Bible and a notebook and just sit down with the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. I don't know how to do this. People look at me and they go, well, you know, you're a pastor. You know, there was a moment in time where I didn't know how to do this. And I came from a church where there was so much legalism that I had all these wrong ideas about God. But as I began to look at the scripture, I remember the first day that God opened my mind about Ephesians 1 and 2, and I realized before the world was created, I was in God's heart. It says he knew me before the world was created. I remember reading Jeremiah 1 and saying, the Lord's speaking to me. Just this voice in, in my head and my heart saying, you're Jeremiah. Before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I have plans for you. I have a calling for you. God wants to speak these things to you. But unless you make room for a relationship, this can't happen. And some of you, the Lord has put on my heart week after week, some of you are working so hard you don't have time to discover God. And some of you even think you're working for God. And instead, you're working for yourself. You're working hard and you're driving yourself into the ground. This was King Saul there in 1 Samuel 15, and I won't take time to read all of it, but if you remember Samuel telling Saul, King Saul, what to do, Saul does, doesn't obey the Lord, and he does all these things that he shouldn't do. Samuel comes to him and says, why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul says, yeah, but we got all these cattle and all this stuff that we can sacrifice to the Lord. And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. There are lots of people that think if they do things for God, God will accept them. Do you realize what you're doing is you're saying, God, I want relationship on my terms. I don't really want to get to know you. I want to bring you gifts and I want you to accept me. How many of you would feel good about that in a human relationship? Scott says it depends on the gift. Anybody else? No, I'm just, <laughs> he's shaking his head back there. The third thing that we need to understand, and the first was an improper view of how we work with God. The second was a religious spirit. The third is living with a severe view of Father God. Many years ago, I was asked to do a men's retreat for a church. Uh, the church had been around for a long time. It was an old church with a, a long tradition. Their men's group was going to this beautiful retreat center out on a lake in Missouri, and uh, they asked me to do a whole thing on holiness, okay? And uh, this is when I was uh, in, with a denomination that had really good churches, but there were some churches that were caught up in, a, in an old, they defined holiness as, as what you don't do. And as I prayed, Lord, how do I approach this with these guys? The Lord gave me an assignment for them. So we, uh, what I did was I gave them a sheet of paper, and I said, now I want you to come up with a list of what it means to be holy, and I want you to write down at least 10 or 15 things as quick as you can. I'm just going to give you a few minutes. But here's the thing. It can't be stated in negative terms. This has to be positive terms, what it means to be holy. And I watched these guys freeze and nobody could write anything down. They could tell you that they didn't do this. I don't smoke. I don't drink. 
I don't do this. I don't go out with women that smoke and drink. I don't, you know, I mean, you know, all these, you know, these funny things that, you know, we get in our heads. And, and if some of you grew up in those churches, you know, the three biggest sins were sex, drugs, and rock and roll, okay? You know, were the legalism of the 70s and whatever, okay? When, we, when I got all the guys back together, I said, how many of you can tell me something? Nobody had more than one or even two things on their list. And I thought, this is how I've lived my life, most of my life. Can you define holiness in positive terms? What do you think? How about this? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. This is the character of God. That's a good place to start. That's being holy. It's being like God. And we have this idea that being holy is what we wear, what's on the outside. What does it have to do? What did God tell us to do? Now, don't come in here in a bikini, okay? Don't test me on this, all right? <laughs> but the point is, it's not how we look on the outside. It's what God is doing in our heart. And we get caught up in all, all this stuff, and it's, it's just ridiculous. People have this severe view of God. Most people define holiness as things that we don't do. Even unity and community are defined as us against them. It's us against the world rather than a dynamic community that is so powerful that people look at what's happening and they go, I want to be part of that group, and you're welcomed in. Don't live a joyless religious existence. It was the elder brother that said, I'm not going in. I'm not going to party with you. I'm not going to go in and celebrate my brother. And that spirit is a severe view of Father God. The fourth thing is comparative righteousness. The Bible tells us to compare ourselves is not wise. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 I love this. We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. Did you get that? Say it with me. No, I'm just kidding. We, we're told by Scripture not to compare ourselves with other people. For most people, they know they're probably going to go to heaven because they're not as bad as their neighbors. That's comparative righteousness. It's not biblical. Okay, well, at least I'm not as bad as fill in the line, right? Comparative righteousness. So here's a test for our hearts. Can you rejoice? Can you be happy when the father is honoring a brother or sister and not you? Can you be happy when God is blessing somebody else? This is an indication of whether or not we have an orphan spirit or not. Because if you have that wound in your heart, what happens is something rises up and I want you to think about this with the orphan spirit. Who's it about when you have an orphan spirit? It's all about me. It's all about me instead of being, when you are a true son and daughter in Christ, you're not always thinking about you. You're able to love people. I live with an orphan spirit for years, and I've got to tell you, it's amazing when God begins to heal you and you can go into a room instead of worrying about what everybody's thinking about you or comparing yourself with everybody else, you can go into the room and love people freely and rejoice in them and focus on them and delight in who God has made them. In the leadership structure that I work in, in our leadership network, Messenger, one of the things is, as I came in as a young leader years ago into Messenger that I saw that I loved was this idea that when somebody was exercising their gift, all the other leaders could step back and just relax and watch people exercise the gift instead of saying, when's my turn? Because I've been in pastors, organizations, and leadership groups where everybody's vying and comparing and competing with one another. It's not the spirit of Christ. 
Does this make sense? And I'll tell you, we injure one another when we do that. People can sense it. They can feel it when you go into the room and it's all about competition, comparison, everything else. And this can be true in business. It can be true wherever you, if you can just rejoice and help other people be successful and rejoice when God blesses them or rejoice when they're prospering, you're a much more pleasant person to be around. You're more like God. And that's a wonderful thing. So that's a test for our heart. So are we like the, uh, the elder brother standing at the door saying, I'm not going into the party. I'm not going to do it. The fifth thing is this. Do we want a habitation or a visitation from God? Do we want God to dwell in us constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Or do we want God just to visit once in a while? See, I grew up with a visitation mentality. Visitation is where you go to a building and all of a sudden God shows up and the power of God is there and you have this great experience and you go home. And I've shared this with you over the years many times. I remember my sixth grade Sunday school teacher said, now remember, wherever you go in your life, it's as if Jesus were right there. Bad theology. He is there with you. If the Spirit of God lives in you, wherever you go, whatever you do, he's there. You can't hide from him. He loves you. He's there. He wants to be a partner with you, okay? We need to get this into our minds. We need to get this into our heads because this is the, the, the center for all good theology, understanding who God is. He wants us to be a habitation where he lives in us and not someone that we go visit in a place somewhere at a certain time. That's called sacred space and sacred time. And a lot of religions believe in that, but I believe God's presence can manifest where you work as powerfully as it can manifest right here. Your holy room, your, your holy room, that's good, your living room, your holy room should be as holy as everything else. Okay? Think about this. Is it true? John 14, 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's habitation thinking. God the Father and God the Son making his home with us. That's, I love that. Psalm 27, 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This idea that we are part of the temple, we are part of his dwelling. Verse 5 says, For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. And he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high on a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy and I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, Lord, you will receive me. You know, Israel many times did not want to seek God's face. Remember when he uh, revealed himself to them when he gave the Ten Commandments? The Lord wanted the people to, he wanted to reveal himself to the people. And the people pleaded with Moses, please don't let this happen. Uh, we want you to go, but we don't want the Lord to reveal himself to us. They were afraid. They wanted God's hand of blessing, but they didn't want to see God's face. And sometimes we as Christians can do the same thing. We want God's hand. We need him when there's a crisis in our lives, but we don't seek his face daily to know him, to walk with him. And that's, that's a, a real distinction, a difference between the orphan spirit and uh, spirit of 
um, adoption, spirit of sonship, daughtership. We need to be careful. We can transmit an orphan spirit. A pastor with an orphan spirit will import the, impart that to his people. I've had to repent as a pastor for at times doing this. I'll find myself talking about things and I'll go, wait a minute, that's the wrong spirit. We've been accepted in Christ. We can transmit a spirit of rejection, a feeling like I don't belong, rejecting others before they reject us, avoiding authority figures, dishonoring authority. These are all signs that you are walking with rejection, defined by what we won't do rather than who we are in Christ. People who cannot connect to community. I know uh, one guy who is, and at one time I called him a friend, although he got mad at me and left. Um, He was amazing at leading people to Christ. But I noticed something about his ministry over the years. Everybody he led to Christ could not connect to the church. And I said, Lord, what's going on with this person? And the Lord said, well, he's got an orphan spirit. And he is communicating that to everybody. He's really great at leading people to Christ. But everybody got offended because he got offended. And he would transmit that spirit of offense to people that he was discipling. And I look now, and these are people that are wanderers. They're like Cain. They're kind of wandering the countryside, and they can't connect to any church. This person personally has had to have been in at least 10 churches in his life, and now he's not in church at all, and he writes angry stuff about all the churches he's been in and all the leaders. That's an orphan spirit. And the danger is is that pastors, leaders, parents, teachers, anybody in authority can transmit an orphan spirit. We have to be careful about how we do that. We need to communicate something different. This idea of an us against them as a basis for unity is part of an orphan spirit. Always saying that the world is bad. Jesus loved the world. He didn't love worldliness. But what does John 3.16 say? A lot of Christians get this wrong. For the Lord was so angry with the world. No, think about this. For God so loved the world. If you haven't read Leif Hetland's book on, the, on healing the orphan spirit, he said there are three chairs. There's the orphan spirit, there's the spirit of adoption, and the third chair is for the people that haven't come into the family that are lost. And if you don't have a heart for them, chances are you have an orphan spirit. That's another sign if you don't have a heart for the lost. I know this is a little hard to hear, but it's, it's true, and I want us to understand the condition of our heart Another uh, thing is always feeling inferior or that we haven't done enough for God. Putting heavy burdens on people that have nothing to do with Jesus' yoke. Jesus warned the Pharisees about this. In Matthew 23, 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. A leader with an orphan spirit will load people up with all sorts of things that have nothing to do with knowing God. That's not good. As a matter of fact, that it, what we're doing is we're actually uh, bringing people into more bondage rather than spiritual freedom. So how do we break free? And moms and dads, same thing. Don't transmit to your children. By the way, you can have an orphan spirit with nobody transmitting it to you. What do the younger son... Uh, What did the father ever do to the younger son to give him an orphan spirit? What did Adam and Eve ever have done to them by God that they rebelled against God and rejected his fatherhood? 
You see, we can initiate an orphan spirit from our side, too. It's not always a wound that comes from somebody else. I want to be very clear about that, okay? But sometimes even brothers and sisters, I've, I've, I can't tell you how many people I've, I've uh, had tell me that an older brother or sister said, did you know that you're really not part of the family that you were adopted? They said that at a young age, you know, and, and it just created havoc in this person's life. So we need to be careful about what we say. So how do we break free from an orphan spirit? How do we bring healing to our hearts? And I'll give you my notes if you want to have these later, if you want to take a look at this. But it's very easy. It's very clear. First of all, we need to repent of rejecting the Heavenly Father's love for us. We need to repent of rejecting the Father's love. We need to repent of believing wrong images of who God is. How many of us, let's just be honest this morning, how many of you at times have had a severe view of God? We pick those up in the broken world that we're in. And we need to say, Lord, forgive me. I've avoided you because this is how I thought you were. And, 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 I, need to, and I need to ask you to forgive me for that. Both sons in the parable, by the way, rejected their father, not just the younger one. Both indicted him by judging him as harsh and unwilling to bless them. Both rejected Father God. The second thing is we need to forgive those who have hurt us in our lives that have transmitted an orphan spirit to us. Leaders who may have misrepresented God to you. Pastors, teachers, and coaches are some of the top three uh, that usually when we do prayer for healing for people, they come up big in that list. But there are others that can be leaders in your life. It can be an aunt. It could be an uncle. It could be a brother, sister, an influential friend. And sometimes we need to repair these broken ties, these words that were spoken over us, and we need to release these people. You need to forgive your parents for past offenses. Parents, I want to tell you something that's so important. If you don't work out your junk with your parents, okay, as adult children, your children will inherit the brokenness that you have in your heart. True. Do you hear what I said? You're all awfully quiet this morning. What's going on? But it's, it's true, isn't it? So we need to work out. And you may say, well, yeah, but you don't know. Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, look at the Bible. Look at how many of you would want Jacob in his early days as your dad? No. Maybe if you were Joseph, because you get a coat and all kinds of favor. But what about the other kids? I mean, talk about favoring one kid over all the others and setting a guy up for failure. Okay, we're broken people. At some point, we need to come to terms and say, you know, my parents weren't perfect and I need to release them. I need to forgive them. Now, there are times when it's hard, and I want to just be very frank with you. There are times when parents do criminal things, where there's sexual abuse, where there's physical abuse. And I tell people, you can be healed. You don't have to go back into that relationship. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There's sometimes you need to forgive from afar. And you should not get back because the person is still an abuser. But can I tell you that if you don't let go of the offenses and the hurts, you will continue to be controlled by that person's actions, even from the grave. I know people who have been abused and the abuser is even dead, but because they can't get that person out of their head and they still have unforgiveness, we want to teach you how to forgive and how to release that and how to break that tie that you have with that person so you can be free and be free to be who God wants you to be. If you are a victim, if victimhood is part, and by the way, the orphan spirit and victimhood, I remember years ago, Steve preached the victim message and he had the V hat I told him we need to get some of those. For anybody that wants to be a victim, we'll make you wear the V hat. And, uh, but victimhood is not part of our identity in Christ. 
There are a lot of people that want to take on that victimhood mentality. And Christ wants to set us free. We're not victims. That's not his destiny for us. Does that make sense? A victim mindset is very closely related to the orphan heart. The last thing we need to do is we need to receive the Father's favor openly. Last week I talked about his robe of righteousness, his ring of covenant. Remember when he restored the young son and he gave him a robe? He says, get the, get the robe. Get a ring. Put it on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. We need to receive the blessings of the Lord and we need to receive forgiveness. I want to read something out of Leif Hetland's book. This is on page 129, if some of you are reading it. It says, Our father finds it hard to understand why many legitimate heirs behave like slaves. If you ever think this way, then welcome to the school of the Pharisees, for you will surely graduate with honors. On the contrary, Father God looks at us from a different vantage point. He sees us as sons and daughters. On many occasions, our Father finds it hard to understand why many legitimate heirs behave like slaves, which will be of no benefit to anyone except perhaps the devil. The whole creation, Romans 8.29, all of creation groans for the sons of God to come. Father is pleading with us so that we can become who he's created us to be. We can release them to the sons of glory. Yet those who are already children do not want or do not know how to live in the Father's favor. However, the spirit of sonship will exceedingly and abundantly bless the recipient no matter how unworthy he thinks he is. Nothing more can give happiness to any father to see his children walking upright in authority and in the stewardship of things he has given them. The same is true of Father God. And then I want to close with this. This is a story from the Emancipation Proclamation, not in the United States, the releasing of slavery, the ending of slavery, but this comes from the island of Jamaica. And if you've read his book, you know what I'm going to read. But it says, on July 31st, 1838, on the island of Jamaica, a man named William Nibs gathered 10,000 slaves for a great praise gathering. This was the day that they got the word written that they were no longer slaves, they were free. They were celebrating the new Emancipation Proclamation Act that would abolish slavery on the island. And they had built an immense coffin, and into it there were placed whips, branding irons, chains, fetters of all kinds, slave garments, and all the things that represented the terrible slavery system that was now coming to a welcomed end. At the first stroke of the midnight bell, Nib shouted, The monster is dying! And at each stroke of the bell that followed, his cry was repeated, and the great crowd began to join in the cry. At the twelfth stroke, ten thousand voices cried out, The monster is dead! The monster is dead! Let us bury him! They screwed the coffin lid down and lowered into a huge grave and covered it up. That night every heart rejoiced, and 10,000 voices grew hoarse, shouting and crying with joy. Once they were in bondage to slavery, but now they were free. Well, there's a tragic side to the story. While many rejoiced in their new liberty and freedom, there were some slaves that lived in remote areas of the island, and these slaves did not know that they had legally been set free. Because they didn't know, for many years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been made, a law, they still continued to serve their slave masters, and their former masters successfully kept the news from them as long as they could. By law, they had been declared free men and did not have to live as slaves any longer. However, ignorance of the truth kept them in bondage. And then Leif says this, now let me tell you an even sadder story. Today, if we'd hear a story of something like that happening, we'd be shocked, sympathetic, and even angry. But the truth is, the same type of thing is happening in our day. 
Jesus Christ, because of his victory against sin on the cross, has issued an emancipation proclamation of liberty and freedom from sin to everyone on this earth. But like some of the Jamaicans, there are those today that just don't understand that they no longer have to live as the slaves to sin. The devil is trying to keep them in that mindset. The message of the cross is this. Satan has been defeated. Sin's penalty has been paid. We no longer have to surrender to sin or be controlled by Satan. We can belong to Jesus and live to please God. Hallelujah. Isn't that good? Hallelujah. Let's stand together. I want to ask you today, I know that some of you over the last weeks have, we've had times of prayer. I feel like we need to do an emancipation proclamation in the spirit today. I've got to tell you, being very honest with you, that getting rid of the orphan spirit, there are moments where God intervenes and he breaks things in our life. But for most people, it's a walk where we begin to replace. Remember, we, we repent, we forgive, people that have sinned against us, and then we replace that information. It takes a while to cut new uh, grooves in our thinking, doesn't it? Okay. Are you willing to say today, I want to do that? And I want to ask you, if you want to pray today, say, Lord, this is something I've struggled with. I want to be free from it. I want you to come forward. Just come forward right now. Let's respond to the Lord. Just come and obey the Lord. Leif has a proclamation on page 178 that I'd like to read. And I love this book. As you can see, my book's going to fall apart here the way I keep thumbing through it here. There are others. Just come on and obey the Lord. There are times in our life where we just need to make a statement. We need to take a stand. It doesn't mean that we're totally done. It just means that this is a key marker in our lives and where God is taking us and where he wants us to be. Just come if the Lord is calling you. I feel like there are others that are holding back. You need to come. Be, be obedient to the Lord. Are you ready to follow me in this prayer? And those in your seats, if you want to join along too, that's fine. But I'll, I'll give you the words and let's proclaim this together. Father God, Father God I, thank I thank you that I am your beloved son or daughter. You delight in me. You celebrate me, not just tolerate me. I ask you to send your love to heal any and all orphan thinking and to expose that behavior in my life. Reveal your love to me in a fresh way. Allow this revelation to bring a radical transformation to my life. I want to be a representative of your kingdom of love. Father, I want to partner with you as your son in bringing your healing love to the nations. That they, will know that they will know you as the loving father of all men. Let's just worship the Lord. Hallelujah. Bless you, God. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your loving kindness. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Lord, we have been talking about this for weeks, and Lord, this is something I believe you're putting your finger on in our lives. 
I know a number of people over the last several weeks have said that you've brought uh, them to a place of realization and revelation and prayer uh, where you have broken things and you have uh, wiped away the old way of thinking. Lord, for many of us, even to, to make that proclamation that we are loved by you and that you want to celebrate us would have been hard to do before. But now we understand it's not about us. It's about who you are. And it's because of who you are that we are who we are. So, Lord, we just proclaim that to you today and we just give you thanks and glory and honor. And Father, we say unashamedly as we stand before you today, as we make this proclamation, we ask that you would continue to lead us step by step, that you would continue, God, to heal our hearts. Lord, where there's old pattern of, patterns of thinking that get in the way of your truth, Lord, help us to think in the new way. Father, where there are strongholds, maybe it's unforgiveness, Lord. Even now, can we just agree together in our hearts, Lord, we just seek to forgive. We just want to release. And sometimes there are levels of forgiveness, and the Lord brings us to a new place and says, I, I want you to do this. And I, I have to tell you, I'm just speaking to all of us now, that uh, the Lord brought up an old hurt uh, that had happened many years ago. And he said, I want you to deal with this. The very interesting thing is the people that I hadn't seen for over 20 years, all of a sudden I saw the other day and the Lord said, okay, this is why I'm preparing your heart. I want to bring you to a new level of healing. I say that because I feel like there are some, you have said you forgive, but there's still a wound and the Lord wants you to bring a deeper level of healing. Lord, also where there have been victimhood things going on, Lord, where we have been bound to people that have abused us, Lord, we willingly now release them, not because they're worthy, but because you have forgiven us and you're teaching us to forgive. It's because of you again, Lord, we release them. Lord, I just pray that you would help us, Lord, to be a church that lives in the spirit of sonship and adoption the spirit of daughtership, the spirit of being connected to you as Father. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Bless you, God. Can we just lift our voices and worship the Lord together? Hallelujah. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You are so good, Lord. We bless you and magnify your name. Hallelujah. 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 I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing, but I just want to say our prayer team is here. If you need prayer for healing, if any of you are having a hard time forgiving or there's, a, there's something the Lord is bringing to your attention and you want prayer, I'm going to ask the prayer team to uh, just be available up here uh, for anybody that needs prayer. But um, I just want to pray a prayer of blessing over the rest of us as we head out. Father, thank you for your love, your amazing love. I just pray that prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the church, that we would understand the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of your love. And God, that we would walk in that understanding, that spirit of revelation of your love, and that it would transform our lives, that the way you love us, Lord, would now become the standard for how we love others unconditionally. Lord, let that work be done in us, we pray. What you've begun, bring to completion. And send us out now with blessing. Watch over each one of us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go in the blessing of the Lord.